Please open your Bibles at uh, Psalm 130. Once there was a little boy lying on the floor drawing a picture and his dad asked him what he was doing. And uh, the boy said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And his dad thought he'd uh, take the opportunity to teach his his son some theology and said, "Uh, "Son, son, nobody knows what God looks like. And the little boy was unperturbed and he continued to draw and says, well, they will in a few minutes. There's a little saying that a picture paints a thousand words. And sometimes that's true. Other times pictures are inadequate and words are needful. Indeed, there's sometimes we could say that uh, words paint a thousand pictures. If you look look with me at Psalm 130 we see some very interesting word pictures. There are eight verses here. They neatly fit into four groups of two verses each. And in each of the group of two verses, we see some interesting word pictures or metaphors. As we look through these eight verses, we see, first of all, four despairing people. Four despairing people. Please... uh, Notice, first of all, verses 1 and 2. It says, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Here we see a picture. The picture is given us here of someone crying out for help. Someone crying out for help. Maybe it's a passenger on a ship that's gone down and sunk in a storm. Or perhaps it's a fisherman who's been washed overboard. But this poor soul... Without a vessel, bobbing about in the angry deep, cries out, Out of the depths have I cried. You know, normally the Hebrews were not seafaring people. And in contrast to that customary phrase about all the excitement of life on the high seas, for the Hebrews, the most salient feature of the sea was simply its depths. It's connotation of some fearsome and uncontrollable power. A mysterious realm where forces are hidden from human understanding. The picture here in the first two verses of someone lost at sea, desperately crying out for help, out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. And he begs to be noticed. His prayer is quite somewhat fractured. It's difficult to understand. He doesn't care how he frames his phrases. He doesn't argue or present a logical case about what's happened and what his need is. He's simply crying out to be noticed, crying out for help. Like the person lost at sea, the psalmist was in the depths of despair like Jonah in the belly of the whale. He touched the bottom, he, he, he hits the bottom. Billows of despair surge over his soul like the, the boiling waves of the deep. Now I want you to look at verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. The second, these, these two verses, we're introduced to someone who is 
seeking forgiveness. There's a person here who's seeking forgiveness. We are introduced here to the solemnities of the criminal court. The judge is seated at the bench. The accused is standing at the bar charged with capital offences. The witnesses are giving their evidence against him. The judge is listening attentively to everything that's being said. And in order to aid his memory, he takes notes. He's writing down important things to remember. He's marking down iniquity. The accused knows that uh, those who testify against him, they're telling the truth. He doesn't know how his crime has been discovered. He doesn't know that, but he does know that there's no use for him to argue the case of justice, please, because if justice is demanded, it will see him punished for his crime. There's only one hope for him, that by some miracle he might be forgiven. But how? On what basis? Through what means might that be possible, if it be possible at all? And so he's like a caged animal, in a des desperate to escape. He's a second despairing person, is desperate for rescue. To look now at verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait. For in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. This third person is like a watchman. Standing on the city walls. Worried that the enemy is nearby. Lurking in the darkness. Planning an attack. Making them move. And he strains his eyes in the darkness to detect the slightest movement. When will the sun come up? If only the sun will come up. Some of you might have had that uh, memorable, miserable experience of being sick throughout the night. Perhaps nursing a sick child and the, the night seems endless. And you watch the clock and time seems to move so slow. It seems to be going backward. It feels like an age. It's just been a few minutes. And we, we're, we're quite despairing. We wonder, when will the morning ever come? When will the light ever come? Somehow we think that if the sun would just come up, if a new day would dawn, perhaps there would be a change of fortune. That's what it's like for the psalmist in verses 5 and 6. He's a despairing person, like someone waiting, pleading for the sunrise, hoping that the new day will bring relief. Some favourable change in the circumstance. And if you look at verses 7 and 8, we see our fourth despairing person. It's a person who's desirous, hoping to be set free. Verse 7, let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy. With him there is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. At the end of verse 7, we see the word redemption. In the middle of verse 8, we have the word redeem. And in the Bible, when the Bible uses those terms of people, the imagery is that of people who are prisoners, people who are slaves, someone who is captive and in bondage. But then along comes someone who does whatever's necessary to grant their freedom, secure their release. And of course, the most notable example of this in the Old Testament is the redemption of the children of Israel from the land of Egypt in the days of Moses. For hundreds of years, they'd been slaves in Egypt. They suffered cruelly under the whip of their vicious taskmasters. But then the Lord intervened and delivered his people from Egypt. And, 
established a free people in the land of Canaan. Deuteronomy 7 verse 8 says, Because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep his oath which he swore unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, this was the birth of the nation of Israel, probably the most significant event in their history. It was commemorated by an annual feast. But this concept of redemption was very familiar to the Jewish people. And by the use of its expression here in verses 7 and verse 8, and by acknowledging there is this need for redemption, the psalmist here is painting a picture of someone who's in bondage, someone who is captive, someone who is a slave and imprisoned. And so you go through these eight verses of Psalm 130. Through the word pictures which are used here, we see four despairing people. A person crying out for help, a person seeking forgiveness, someone desperate for the sun to rise, and someone hoping to be set free. And I don't think it takes too much imagination for you to see that there are people in the world today who are just like this. There are people in the world just like this today who are despairing just like these people here. A skeptic wrote in his autobiography, and I quote, What else is there to make life tolerable? We stand on the shore of an ocean crying to the night, and in the emptiness sometimes a voice answers out of the darkness. But it's the voice of someone drowning. And in a moment the silence returns, and the world seems to be quite dreadful. The unhappiness of many people is very great, and I often wonder how they endure it. The autobiography of a skeptic. Now that's not a recent problem. That's not a recent problem. This psalm was written some 3,000 years ago. It describes our present situation very well. It's a common human experience that there are people who despair. But let's come to our second heading there on the outline sheet and consider four desperate conditions. There are four despairing people here because they are in four desperate conditions. In verses 1 and 2 we see someone who is drowning. Not in a literal sense of course but as a figure of speech. There are many times in the Bible when great trouble of soul and sorrow is compared to drowning in the tumultuous waters for example psalm 42 verse 7 deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts all thy waves and thy billows are gone over me psalm 69 verse 1 save me O god for the waters are come in and unto my soul psalm 55 verse 5 fearfulness and trembling are come upon me and horror hath overwhelmed me this person in verses 1 and 2 is despairing of life he's almost gone the depths normally silence all that they engulf. When a person finally disappears below the surface, the body becomes lifeless, the voice becomes speechless. This person here is not quite there, almost, but not quite. He's drowning, but not quite drowned. He cries out. In desperation, he cries out. Above the roar of the billows, there is cry for help. And perhaps you can identify with that. The fact that you're here tonight is indication that you haven't drowned yet, but you may be drowning. And perhaps it is that uh, such are the trials and tribulations in your life that it seems like in you know, a wave after wave is 
crashing upon you. Somehow it seems as if you've been tossed from the vessel. No safety, no security, no progress, no purpose. And now life is merely a struggle for survival. And perhaps you feel yourself failing in the struggle. Running out of strength. In verses 3 and 4, the desperate condition is one of guilt. There stands the accused before the judge. The witnesses give their evidence. The judge hands down his verdict and it's guilty. How many sins does it take to make a sinner? Just one. God's word says that if you keep the whole law yet offend in one point, you're guilty of all. And so, so what hope do we have if God is to mark all our iniquities, every single sin, and call us to account for every single sin that he's written down? If that being the case, our condition is lost. And even in confessing our sins, we can't remember them all. Our hearts are corrupted, our minds are confused. Sometimes we're unclear about what sin is, and we don't even know that we're committing it. And if mere confession of sin would cover our guilt, well, even then it would be impossible for us. Because we can't confess all of our sins, we don't know them all. But if God were to mark them, if God were to record them all, then it's certainly clear that we're all guilty. As Paul says in Romans, every mouth stopped. No excuses, no word to utter in our defence. Every mouth stopped. All the world guilty before God. And I think very often we tend to think of evil and sin is only determined by the result of the action and not the action itself. If you were to fire a gun at a person and the bullet unexpectedly turned aside, you would be, in the eyes of God, just be just as guilty as if you hit the victim. You see, human law may not call you a murderer. Because human law is obliged to judge sin by its effect. But God looks on the heart. God examines the motive. God sees the intention. God sees the design. God knows the desire. And if we do wrong and no harm comes of it, we're not innocent. We're not thereby justified. And if we do evil and even good seems to come from it, the evil would be just as evil. You see, it's not the result of the action, but the action itself that God weighs. And being weighed in the balances of God's standard of righteousness, we're all guilty. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In our quieter moments, our conscience roars like a lion, telling us that we're guilty before God. Lady Macbeth was an accomplice in the murder of King Duncan. And she thought that she could quite easily quieten the screaming of her conscience concerning the blood-stained hands. She said to her husband, a little water cleanses us of this deed. But her husband knew better. She says, he says, will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No, this hand will rather make the multitudinous green seas red. Long and loud, Lady Macbeth's conscience troubled her. She said, here is the smell of blood still. 
For all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. And when the torment of her troubled conscience became unbearable, Lady Macbeth did what so many other people do. She, she ended up taking her own life. She raced to meet her maker guilty. Terrible price to pay to appease an offended conscience. Spurgeon used to say, I quote, he says, Oh, believe me, guilt upon the conscience is worse than the body upon the rack. Even the flames at the stake may be cheerfully endured, but the burnings of a conscience tormented by God are beyond all measurable, unendurable. Un In verses 5 and 6, the desperate condition is one of darkness. Imagine for a moment what it, would be, what it would be like to be blind and waiting for the daylight, but daylight never comes. Such is the person described here, not physically, but darkness in the soul. And here is a very powerful metaphor for human grief. For the soul can descend into greater darkness than even the body. The body can can bear a certain number of wounds, but no more. But the soul can suffer more than 10,000 10, ways. Darkness of the soul is a darkness that, that can be felt. In verses 5 and 6, the desperate condition is one of bondage. There was a custom in ancient times of placing a millstone around someone's neck so heavy was it that they could hardly walk. That practice has long been abandoned. And yet there are some people who carry such a heavy burden in their hearts. They're captive. They're ensnared. They're enslaved. They long for liberty. And in these eight verses of Psalm 130, described with, to us in a minimum of words, graphic illustrations of four despairing people in four desperate conditions. Actually, maybe it's just one person. One person, I wonder if that's you who's described here. We come then to our third heading. One deadly reason for all of this. One deadly reason. What is the overriding theme that ties together the images here of drowning and guilt and darkness and bondage? What is the one theme that draws it all together? It's, it's sin. All of this is because of sin. It's iniquity mentioned in verse 3. The last word in verse 8. It's the sinner that's pictured here as a person drowning in the sea. It's the guilty sinner standing in the courtroom. It's the guilty sinner who's like the night watcher upon the world's walls, hoping for light. Like the slave in prison, desperate for rescue. It's our sin that takes us down to the depths of despair and guilt and darkness and bondage. There are several ways that a man or a woman may sink into the depths of despair. There's the depths of despair that come upon a person because of poverty. A person might find themselves utterly stripped of all earthly possessions. Sometimes we might come across such a person still alive, 
But in such, ab in such abject circumstances that it strikes us, we marvel that, you know, here's a, here's a person who seems to be living at a level less than even the beasts of the earth. There's the depths of despair that might come upon someone because of great sorrow. Billow after billow crashes upon someone. Friend after friend departs from them. Tribulation and anguish of soul causes the fountains of the great deep within them to be broken up. And if, it doesn't, if they don't drown by the breakers going over them, they are, they are almost drowned in a flood of their own tears. Sorrow might cause a person to go in the depths of despair, as might poverty. Thirdly, there are also others that might go in the depths of despair because of mental darkness. When the soul becomes more and more sorrowful, down to the very depths, which is just on this side of ruin. The earth is hollow. Heaven seems empty. The, earth, the air is heavy. Every form is a, a, a deformity. Every sound a discord. The past is a gloom. The present is a puzzle. The future is horrible to contemplate. One more step down and this man will go into the dungeons of despair. Darkness. There are some depths to which a person may descend. By various circumstances, but by far, by far, the most horrible depth, depths into which a person can descend is into the depths of sin. It is our own iniquity. It's our own sin which puts us in the greatest of dangers. You know, these days most people have a very inadequate view of God and a very inaccurate understanding of sin. Both of them, to many people, is just a joke. Both of them is just a joke. But both God and sin should never be trivialized. These are the two greatest issues in a person's life. One day someone will have to, have to stand before God and they'll be thinking about two things. Number one, God and sin. Stand before God who will ask them to give account of their sin. Are the two issues that are all and only important at that moment in time. God will judge. And the judgment will be on the basis of sin. Ralph Benning lived through the 1600s. He lived through the Great Plague of London. He went on to write a book entitled The Plague of Plagues. It's a book about sin. That book is still in print. It's been retitled, published by Banner of Truth. It's called The Sinfulness of Sin. In my copy on page 177, this is what Ralph Benning says. He says, in general, sin is the worst of all evils, the evil of evil, and indeed the only evil. Nothing is so evil as sin. Nothing is evil but sin. As the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, so neither the sufferings of this life nor that which are, is to come are worthy to be compared as evil with the evil of sin. No evil is displeasing to God or destructive to man but the evil of sin. Sin is worse than affliction, worse than death, worse than the devil, worse than hell. Affliction is not so afflictive, death is not so deadly, the devil is not so devilish and hell is not so hellish as sin is. The four evils I've just named are truly terrible and from every one of them and, and from all of them, everyone is ready to say, good Lord, please deliver us. Yet none of these, nor all of them together are as bad as sin. Therefore, our prayers should be 
to be delivered from sin. And if the Lord hear no other prayer else, let him hear this one. We beseech thee, O Lord, deliver us from sin. Ralph Venning. You don't find many people talking like that these days. You don't find many quotes like that these days. Now, it's not right for us to minimise distress or poverty or sorrow or mental darkness or tribulation or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. But friends, none of those things can separate us from the love of God. But sin can. Unforgiven sin can. Sin alone can. In Isaiah 59, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. His ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. The one deadly reason for all the despair that we read about here in Psalm 130, the guilt, the darkness, the bondage, the one deadly reason for all of that is sin. And because we're all sinners, does that mean that all of us are destined to be ruined and damned? Well, thankfully, no, because verse 4 says, but there is forgiveness with thee. But notice verse 4 comes hard on the heels of verse 3. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? The answer is none of us. If God marked all of our sins, none of us would stand. If God wrote them all, all in a book, never to be rubbed out, none, none of us would stand. But... Verse 4, there is forgiveness with the Lord. He is a forgiving God. And so we come to point number four. One divine solution. There is forgiveness, but there is forgiveness with thee. Spurgeon says, and I quote, how significant is that first word, but. As if you heard justice clamoring, let the sinner die. And the fiends of hell howling, cast him down to the fires. And the conscience shrieking, let him perish. And nature itself groaning beneath his weight. The earth weary with carrying him. The sun tired of shining upon the traitor. The very air sick of finding breath for the one who only spends it in disobedience to God. The man is about to be destroyed. He's swallowed up quick when suddenly there comes this thrice blessed but which stops the reckless course of ruin, puts forth a strong arm bearing a golden shield between the sinner and destruction and pronounces these words, but there is forgiveness with thee. That's a, that's, a, that's a solution to the problem of sin. To receive God's forgiveness, forgiveness from him. You see, sin has to be forgiven at the point of guilt. If a man sins against his wife, he must make things right with his wife. If a man sins against his nature, he must, his neighbour, he must make things right with his neighbour. It's no use asking his wife to forgive him for something he did wrong to a workmate. And therefore, forgiveness needs to be sought from God because all sin is against God. Remember when David sinned and committed adultery and then committed murder. He was guilty of both of those things to be sure. He sinned against many people in doing those things. But in Psalm 51, he makes an interesting point. He says, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Was it true that he hadn't sinned against others? No, he wasn't saying that. But in acknowledging that he sinned against others, this point was, first and foremost, he sinned against God. And so it is true. 
All of sin needs to be is against God. Therefore, sin must be forgiven by God. Go back and have a look at verse 1. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Notice the word I. Notice the word thee. I, that's the personal sinner. Thee, that's the personal saviour. Notice there's no intervening priest. You can go directly to God and cry out to forgiveness. For forgiveness, verse 2, Lord, hear my voice. Let my ear be attentive to the voice of my supplication. When a man's mouth is open like this, God's ears are never closed. When the penitent is praying, God is listening. And those who are furthest cast down are not furthest from God. They are nearest to him. The Bible says the Lord is near. The Lord is nigh unto all them that are of a broken heart. And saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. If you humble yourself before God, if you confess your sin to him and ask for his forgiveness, he is not far away. He's right there listening to answer. If you look down at verse 7, you'll notice that God's forgiveness includes two things. Verse 7, let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. God's forgiveness includes mercy and includes redemption. It includes giving us mercy. It includes redeeming us. What do these two, two things mean? Mercy is not giving us what we rightly deserve. And how is it that God can offer us mercy? When we come to the Lord and ask him to forgive us, he is able to show us mercy and not give us the punishment that we deserve because someone else took that punishment for us. And the someone who took the punishment for us did not deserve it. We did. Jesus didn't. And so this is the issue. Jesus comes and dies in the guilty sinner's place. He didn't deserve to die. We do. He didn't deserve to be punished. We did. All of our sin goes to him and he's punished for it. And because God's justice is satisfied, because sin has been punished, God is now free to offer us mercy without going against his nature. Justice has been satisfied, now he's free to offer us mercy. Verse 7 says, there is mercy with the Lord. That mercy is for us. It's for us if we'll cry out to him. Now concerning redemption... Earlier we mentioned about the redeeming of those who were slaves in bondage. And where that's mentioned in the, in the Old Testament, it usually involves someone intervening and securing that redemption. And that's exactly what God has done for us in, through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has intervened and secured our redemption. But what Jesus did in redeeming us goes even further than the concept that we see of redemption in the Old Testament. The New Testament concept of redemption goes even a step further. There is a payment of a price for our redemption and that price that was paid was the, paid was the precious blood of Christ. Jesus shed his precious blood. He gave his life upon the cross. He laid down his life. He died shedding his blood so that we could be redeemed. He paid the price. His death, his blood shed upon the cross so that we could be set free. Paul's epistle says this, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. 
He gave his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life to redeem many. You're bought with a price. We've been redeemed because of the price that was paid, the blood of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 7 doesn't say, let all Israel hope for mercy. But it says, let all Israel hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy. Notice it doesn't say, let all Israel hope for plenteous redemption. It says, let all Israel hope in the Lord. For with him is plenteous redemption. Where do we find mercy? Where do we find redemption? We find it with the Lord. We go to the Lord. There is forgiveness with him. I mentioned that David committed terrible sin, adultery and murder. And the Lord convicted him and he confessed his sin and the Lord forgave him. And he wrote about it in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, he makes a promise. He said, Lord, out of of this experience of forgiveness, I, I will teach transgressors your ways. You've taught me your ways. I will teach others your ways. And he fulfills that promise by writing Psalm by, re, uh, by writing Psalm 32. I want you to turn over, please, to Psalm 32. Leave Psalm 130 behind and let's go to Psalm 32. just want to read the first five verses. Psalm 130, we've read about, it, about despairing people in desperate condition. Look at the condition of this person, Psalm 32. Blessed is he... Whose transgression is forgiven. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no guile. David says, when I kept silence. That is when I wouldn't confess my sin. When I wouldn't go to the Lord. I tried to hide it. I tried to cover it. I tried to deal with it myself. He said, when I did that. He said, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. But then he says, verse 5, But then I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I'll confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Arthur Conan Doyle was the the author that gave us uh, Sherlock Holmes. And uh, he was a bit of a weird guy, had some funny ideas, and he played a prank on some of his friends. He sent them a telegram saying, flee, all is discovered. And within hours, his closest friends had left the country. It was just a prank. But they all had guilty consciences. And the thought that all was discovered was enough for them just to run. It's a cruel, cruel prank. But how wonderful is it to know that all is forgiven? All is forgiven. What wonderful words. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. That can be us. That can be you. The one who cries from the depths can be raised to the heights. The one who confesses his guilt can be justified in the eyes of God. 
The one who's stumbling about in the darkness can be brought into the glorious light of Christ. The one who's, who's wasting away in bondage can be liberated and set free indeed. And God offers you this as a free gift of his grace. As a free gift to all who will receive it. And this evening it's uh, my privilege to present to you the free gift of the gospel of Christ. God has provided it. It's just up. To, he's entrusted it to us. It's up to us to, to hand it to you. So there it is if, you, if, you, if, if you'll have it. If you want it, it's there for the asking. It's there for the receiving. It's all been done for you. Salvation has been provided for you. All you have to do is receive it by faith. Say, so, yeah, that's for me. I want that. I need that. That's me, Lord. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you pray that prayer, God hears that prayer. He's there for the asking. He's there for the receiving. You don't have to work hard. Jesus has done all the work. And the abundance of work that he's provided for you, he offers it to you as a free gift if you'll receive it this evening. I know we're all sinners here, and I don't think anyone disagrees with me. But I'm not sure if everyone here has been forgiven yet. I know many have, and many people raise their hands and say, praise the Lord, the Lord's forgiven my sin. But if you're not sure about that, then you need to make sure tonight. And if you'd like to talk some more about that, I'll be delighted to talk with you more about that. You can ask your questions, I'll be happy to take the Bible and show you from God's word how you can know your sins are forgiven let's close in a word of prayer let's pray heavenly father thank you that you provide forgiveness for us lord we, we need it desperately uh, we are all guilty sinners in your sight um, left to our own devices uh, lord we're in a desperate situation and uh, despairing uh, without any hope of salvation but we thank you that lord you've come to rescue us uh, thank you for the wonderful gospel of the lord jesus christ the good news about jesus what he did for us upon the cross died for our sins rose again so that we can be saved uh, lord thank you for the good news of the gospel and as we present uh, the free gift lord i pray there'd be someone here this evening either in the meeting here in the building here or someone online uh, who uh, sees their need and is willing to accept and receive the free gift of forgiveness this evening. Lord, we pray that it might be so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> We're going to sing our final hymn, which is about the, uh, God's grace, which is greater than our sin. And uh, Mark's going to come and lead us. Thank you.